is Dennis Kucinich, the once and future mayor, the boy mayor from 40 years ago, back in the race now. So this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Layla Atassi. We got some interesting stories to talk about today, not the least of which is Dennis Kucinich. Can't wait to get to that one. But we have another one to talk about first. Why is Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan teaming up with a youth group in defense of the First Amendment? Or Johnston, Jim Jordan seems like he cannot go a week without doing something kind of out there to get a headline. Yeah, you know, I bet Jane Cahoon, who's off this week, is really sad that she she missed this question because I was like, oh, this is such a Jane question because it's a Jim Jordan question. But he announced Monday that he's starting this campus free speech caucus with a freshman representative, Kat Kamick of Florida and the Young Americas Foundation. The top officials of that foundation include former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and former Vice President Mike Pence. The idea is they want to push back on the woke, that's my air quotes there, woke cancel culture of campuses and defend freedom for Americans everywhere. Jordan put out a statement. He said the First Amendment is under attack on campuses across the country. Every day, students and faculty are forced to self-censor out of fear that they will be canceled by the mob. And um, Kamek said on Fox News that these aren't higher education institutions. They're indoctrination camps. So they just basically feel the college campuses are too liberal and the liberal kind of mass of kids on these campuses and probably staff and professors tamp down the free speech from the conservative causes. So um, they say that they, that they need to fight for their freedom. And I, I feel like the Kent State gun girl is probably part of this group, but I did not research that. <laughs> is it possible that college campuses are liberal because they're filled with people who are 18 to 22 and I, the yes. large majority of those are kind of left thinking? Absolutely. I mean, there's like the old saying, right? Like if you're um, not a Democrat before you're 30, something, something you're like, you don't know what you're doing. And then if you're not a Republican after 30, I don't know. But I, I do feel like young people are more idealistic and they believe in these causes about, you know, like, and, and, you know, politics change. Look at all of the movements, the, the social movements we've seen over the last century. They're they're fought by youth, you know, whether you're talking about civil rights or women's rights or um, gay and lesbian rights. I mean, that's where it comes from. And, um, and right, so let me let me ask this. What can, what can a congressional caucus <laughs> actually do? to free up free speech on a college campus? I mean, what is the mechanism by which they're going to cancel the woke culture at Kent <laughs> State University? And I think this just seems like a stunt, a headline grab. It's working. We're talking about them, but it's but it is it pointless? Probably. I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, maybe they think they can pass a law where they limit federal funds to some universities that don't have equal numbers of speakers of either side. I don't know. I mean, there's no nothing concrete in this that says how they're going to attack this issue. Um, he just, you know, Jordan said he feels like college is a time that students should be challenged with their beliefs. But I don't think Jordan likes to have his beliefs challenged very much. You know, maybe Jim Jordan should have taken more care when he was on a college campus to protect the students. Because let's face it, back when he was at Ohio State, there was a doctor sexually molesting the students around him, and he claims to have missed the whole thing. So he's more worried about free speech than he was about the, the safety of the students in his care. You're listening to This Week in This CLE. Hey, Chris Quinn here, editor of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. 
Laura, Jane, Layla, and I are ever so grateful that you listen to this podcast. We have a good time with this daily conversation. We appreciate the many notes you've sent us telling us how much you feel a part of it. So we've got a favor to ask. We're trying to find out how people listen to this podcast and where they learned about it so we can get it to others who also might like it. We're hoping you'll take a few minutes to fill out a survey to help us learn a few things. You can find it at www.cleveland.com slash the CLE survey. Again, that's www.cleveland.com slash the CLE survey. Thanks so much for taking the time. Why is Dennis Kucinich, who was tossed out of office as Cleveland mayor after one two-year term 40 years ago, running to get the job anew? Leila Tassi, it's 40 years later. <laughs> he is as old as Frank Jackson, who is, right. who is getting out after four terms, not running for a fifth term. I, I just I don't get why Dennis Kucinich would want this other than the publicity that he's getting <laughs> because he's running again 40 years later. <laughs> well, like like all the candidates in this race, Kucinich really sees himself as Cleveland's best hope right now. The city is deeply affected by poverty. It's reeling in the midst of its second consecutive year of record-breaking violence. And Kucinich says he knows how to address all of it. His campaign announcement yesterday really focused largely on crime. He said that he would hire 400 police officers to to uh, to police the city. And, and the, the police force currently has 1,600. Uh, he would increase pay and offer benefits such as college tuition to draw high-quality candidates to, to the police force. He'd also staff up special units like uh, the ones that investigate homicide and gangs. He would he would add hundreds of um, he would add a hundred specialized staff to deal with calls such as for mental health crises that don't require an armed response. And he says that he would uh, he would encourage the schools to teach peace and nonviolence from an early age. Of course, you know, Kucinich is known as the boy mayor because he was the youngest mayor of a major American city when he was first elected in 1977, as you mentioned. And ironically, he would become the oldest mayor in Cleveland's history. He'd be 75 at the time of taking the oath. Uh, to many Clevelanders, Kucinich's time as mayor was best known for his high-profile battle with banks over Munilite, which is now Cleveland Public Power. And he was, uh, at that time, unwilling to sell the publicly owned utility to, to the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, which is now part of First Energy. The utility eventually defaulted on its debt, and that's what led to Kucinich's demise. Uh, he lost to George Voinovich after that. And, you know, eventually he made this political comeback in the 90s when he was elected to Congress and he served eight terms and then ran for governor, ran for president twice. You know, so it, he's entering this crowded field. But to many Clevelanders, he is, uh, you know, he's the one to beat. He is the most notable name. And, um, you know, it's just it adds an interesting dimension for sure well, to this Seth, race. Seth Richardson, our political writer, said something really good yesterday. He goes, yeah, he, he might start as the front runner, but every day that goes by, he loses votes, that he's not going to gain where he is as more and more people learn about him. He might lose votes, not not That's pick up, which, which is it. Well, yeah, it's a good insight because a lot of people are remembering back in the day. Laton Pack here. I mean, with all the money he wants to spend on police, it sounds like he wants to go back into default because that's expensive. That's I mean, expensive. you add hundreds of officers. That's the biggest cost the city has. And Cleveland is not exactly awash in money. The other thing is, you know, he put out the book just last week about his 
fight with uh, what became first energy and how he saved Cleveland public power from it. And, he, and all right. I mean, that, looking back now, I think most people agree did a good thing. The difference though, is he's very tight with a family that is kind mm-hmm. of in the pocket of first energy today. He's taken a lot of money from the George family. They are a representative of first energy and city council president, Kevin Kelly has been working pretty hard to, to uncover just how sleazy First Energy might have been in a new round of trying to subvert Cleveland public power. So whereas Dennis Kucinich was the hero for public power 40 years ago, he's with the wrong side now. He's on the First That's Energy side. And so I is, think- is that the thing that Seth feels will be his undoing as time goes on and people learn more about that? What what do you think well, is the... Uh... I, I, I think... I think as as when people like Bashir Jones are out in the neighborhoods talking about the real needs of Clevelanders, I think what they're going to try and do is show that Dennis Kucinich is out of touch with the needs of Clevelanders. He really hasn't been focused on Cleveland for a long time. The other question, look, we all know Dennis Kucinich loves a headline more than probably anybody else. He loves being Mm -hmm, talked mm -hmm. about. He played coy the entire spring while he was sending Christmas cards out saying, you know, Dennis Kucinich for mayor again or something like that. And while he had canvassers out, he would refuse to talk about whether he might run or not saying that's all a media thing. I'm not, I'm not feeding that when he was actually raising money and, and canvassing. I I just question, does he want to do the work? This is a hard job And the next four years in Cleveland are going to be especially hard because downtown will be transformed as fewer people work there and it becomes more of a residential area it's going to take a visionary. It's going to be it take somebody that rolls up their sleeves. And he, he's near the end of his career. Does he want to do the work or does he just want the headlines? Because everybody in the nation was paying attention yesterday to the boy mayor coming back 40 years later. It's a That's great right. story. It is a great headline. Right. You're right. Yeah. But, I don't know. But will he do the work? This is Laura Johnston. I just, I just feel like we talk about revitalization. We're talking about the lakefront. And it doesn't make me want to vote for somebody who was mayor, you know, 40 before I was born. Right. Like I just, you know, as, as much well, not as- a good mayor. I mean, he fought with everybody. OK, the public power thing was a victory, but he just fought with everybody. I mean, he he spent two years as mayor and people threw him out. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that doesn't speak highly for his, you know, role in Cleveland. I, honestly, the thing I think most about Dennis is those signs, you know, like the yellow yard signs that just say Dennis with an exclamation point. So I don't know if those are going to be making a comeback as well, like the you retro have, signs. You have had some of the candidates that are running have been doing the work for the past whatever, 10, 20 years. Kevin Kelly's been council president for a long time. He's been investing. He has some thoughts about the city. He doesn't have a lot of charisma and so, you know, has a challenge in in winning. He's kind of like your nebishy college professor. But, you know, you've got several long-time and short-time council members that have been doing the work. You know, Layla, you talked about Zach Reed and his public safety push Uh, over the years, that's the number one issue facing residents. And whether you give him credibility for substance or not, he's been there. He's, he's been out there talking about it. Where's Dennis been? I mean, what, what does he bring to this? What knowledge of city hall is there? I covered city hall 20 years ago, and it's a completely different animal today for the reporters covering it. I can't imagine how different it is 40 years ago. That's right. You know, and also, 
I felt that his focus on on crime, I mean, while this is a hot moment, I mean, really the city is in a, is a bad place, but to say like, oh, I'm going to hire all these police officers, that is, that's the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, that to make your entire announcement about that just seems real weak when the city faces so many other issues. And and, and also, you know, to, to your point, Chris, about how how would he pay for it? Is this where all our, all the stimulus money is going to go? I mean, is he going to pour half a billion money. dollars into the police force? Because that's yep. not that's really tone deaf for the moment here. And it's not sustainable because it's one time money. You would squander the money that's and right. not transform lives. That's the worst thing we could do is use that money for operations. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I God, I hope that doesn't happen. And, because- and we, you know, Adam Freese has been writing about like the crime in the city and how the trend is going. And he talked to council people who said it's impossible to even hire police right now. No one wants to be an officer. And I know Dennis talked about, you know, raising wages and stuff, but I don't think he's looked at the full picture. Yeah. I mean, political insiders have been saying if he runs, they expect the runoff election to be between him and Bashir Jones, the, the first term council member who's been out working the streets. I, I don't know how that would go in the end. I mean, Bashir has a, a a way to get people excited. I mean, he has managed in three years to build some serious name recognition and some momentum and I, I would just wonder how some of those East Side voters who might be thinking about Kucinich might go in a head-to-head contest. And there's also so many unknowns. We've got, we got so many other candidates in this race. It's not going to take a whole lot of votes to emerge. Uh, but it does seem like right now, Dennis Kucinich is probably the front runner. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do we know about the collision between the USS Cod submarine and a Coast Guard cutter along the Cleveland Lakeshore? The Cod isn't even operable, right, Laura Johnston? I just, when I first heard about this, I thought, how could there be a crash? It doesn't run, but I guess it was being towed and crashed. See, the first thing I thought when Jane Maurice wrote the story on Sunday, she called it an elision, and I was like, wait, is that a typo? And I had to Google it. And it turns out an elision is when you hit a stationary object. So I learned something from our story on Sunday. Huh. I would have called we, it a crash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. Really? How much of a I crash never is. heard. I never knew that an elision is if I run into something that's stationary. Yes, yes, because I totally thought it was a typo. Four one for Jane Marie. That's right. So um, then we had Pete Cross write about this yesterday and go a little deeper into this story. So. Um, the cod cannot move on its own. That's why it needed this tow to Erie, Pennsylvania, where it's getting about a million dollars in work done over about eight weeks this summer. So on Saturday, the day before this World War II submarine was supposed to be towed, the skipper called the Coast Guard and said he was concerned about, quote, congestion in the harbor and suggested that the Morro Bay cutter be moved. And the, the uh, Morro Bay is an ice cutter, so it, it stays in Cleveland for a lot of, obviously, the summer. It's not needed. Well, even though it's in the Cleveland Harbor, the Cleveland Harbor station is not in charge of it. So they relayed the message to another guy who didn't get the message until Monday after the elision happened. But uh, it sounded like they were really looking at the, I think the back of the boat. I'm going to mess up what that's called, but they should have been looking at the front and it was kind of a creak. It wasn't more, wasn't much of a crash and it scraped it. The cod still went all the way to Erie, Pennsylvania. It's not like it damaged it too much. But actually, the Coast Guard stopped the tow, uh, tugboat off the coast of Euclid Beach to have a conversation about what had just happened on Sunday. 
Well, you would think they would. You just crashed into their cutter, and you, right. you know, in that leaving the scene of the elision. Right. So, um, it's it's fascinating. What is why did the sub have to go to Erie? What 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 are they doing there that they couldn't do here? I, I I'm not sure why the expertise in Erie, although that's obviously a well known area for ship issues. But they're replacing corroded steel at the bottom of the hull. They're applying a protective coating. It's made by Sherwin Williams and they're to get this all done they're using about 400,000 from the National Park Service plus donations and fees um, and they actually got a company out of St. Clair Michigan to t- to tow it all the way there so we're including at least three great late states in this story <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a, I'm glad they're fixing it up it's a it's a very cool it thing on Cleveland's so Lake cool. Front. Yeah. I got to tour it a couple of years ago and it really does feel like you're back in time to the the smell of diesel in the air and the uh the radio playing over top and you can't imagine like living in there with a you know more than a dozen guys like it's just it's pretty incredible it, it operated um during three years at the end of World War II in the um, Japanese area. Why does it have the smell of diesel if it doesn't run? I don't know. I think they like <laughs> pump it in there. <laughs> to give you the feel of being in World War II. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are Ohio Senate Republicans trying to stop cities from offering free broadband access? Isn't the general consensus today that we need to make sure everyone has low-cost, high-speed broadband as a basic need and right? Leila Tassi, we've talked over and over during these past weeks about all of the sleazy stuff the Republicans have shoved into their budget proposal. I mean, it's, it's so many, it's hard to keep track of. It flies in the face of Ohio's laws about having single subject legislation. This one was one of the last pieces they slipped in. And it seems like the people who were in the pocket of First Energy for that scandal are now in the pocket of AT&T, Verizon and Spectrum. So upsetting. This uh, this one will really get people's blood boiling this morning. Jeremy Pelzer reports that the Senate Republicans have slipped this measure in at the very last minute. And essentially, it's going to hold up one hundred ninety million dollars in proposed state funding to expand high-speed internet to underserved areas of the state. Under the language, the 30 or so municipal broadband programs in Ohio, which include cities like Fairlawn, Hudson, Medina, and Wadsworth, wouldn't be allowed to operate as long as there's a private sector company operating in the area, as there are in most areas, if not all of the cities. And the Senate proposals would also bar municipalities from accepting federal money for the purpose of starting a broadband program. We've been talking about this for so long. I mean, this is this is essential. And, and the, uh, you know, the pandemic really brought that out. We 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 understand now how important uh, connectivity is. So, you know, what we're talking about is no municipal broadband programs ever in Ohio as as our society becomes ever more dependent on broadband. And we recognize that uh, that need to expand those networks to these underserved communities. And Jeremy draws upon in his story, Fairlawn is an example of a city that would be deeply affected by this. They started their own municipal broadband company because they were worried that slow Internet speeds would deter businesses from coming to their town. And the Internet companies that were operating there were unwilling to upgrade their infrastructure to to meet their needs. Now they offer their own high speed Internet in Fairlawn at a pretty low cost. And it's it's attracted business, but also caused home values to rise. It's been so beneficial to the community. And Cleveland wants Cleveland wants to duplicate that effort. You know, the mayoral candidates are making it a top issue in the race. 
So, of course, you know, what's at the heart of all this? Money. These large corporations are huge political donors. And, um, you know, John Fortney, a spokesman for the Republican caucus, told Jeremy that municipal governments lack the expertise to run these types of facilities, even though they have been running them pretty successfully yeah, and doing these, good by the community. These are the people behind, you know, they voted for HB6. Are they just completely corrupt? I mean, I mean th- there is no justification for this except corruption, that they're in the pockets of the big companies again. Did we not learn anything from HB6? I mean, are we going to, is the FBI going to come out a year from now with another scandalous investigation where people have been given all sorts of money to do this? Because the, the cities are trying to provide for their residents. They're trying to make sure school students have the resources they need to thrive. And the Ohio Republicans are trying to stop it. Where's Matt Dolan? He's got a right. prominent role in the budget. He was the one that came out to speak for their school funding proposal that they put together. If, if he's such an honest man, why is he not screaming about this and blocking it along with all the other stuff? I mean, they stuck in another thing. That's, this one boggles the mind, too. They're going to stop SNAP benefits for anybody with a car valued at more than $7,000. That's, do you realize how little car you get for $7,000? I mean, basically they're saying you have to be so poor that you're driving around in a car that needs constant maintenance that bankrupts you or you don't get food benefits. Oh, that's that's absolutely true. Where is Matt Dolan? He's supposed to be the level-headed Republican senator of Northeast Ohio. He's got a prominent role and he hasn't said a peep about these sleazy things that are stuck in the budget. I mean... I, the, the only hope you have is in reconciliation that that this stuff will get taken out or that Mike DeWine will veto some of it because it's so unreasonable. I mean, Mike DeWine has been pretty strongly in favor of the of these broadband measures. I mean, this is this is like his baby, this hundred ninety million dollar uh, funding project. And um, I just I just can't believe, I, I just don't believe that he would support it, that he would sign off on it. I think they I think they would be dealing with the veto. The Senate Republican budget is an attack on poor people in Ohio. In step after step after step, they have made it much harder for people in poverty to get out of poverty. And in this in this broadband thing, they're just taking care of big business the way they did with First Energy. I I hope we get details of what those utilities, what the uh, communications companies did to get this favorable treatment from our Ohio Senate Republicans. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did people in Northeast Ohio spend their stimulus checks on over the past year? Laura Johnston, we asked people through my subtext account, through the coronavirus subtext account, and you got lots of answers. And it's kind of interesting how people pumped up the economy with the money they got. Yeah, absolutely. I was really just curious to see, you know, we'd, we've written stories about how hard it is to get some things because people are, are buying furniture and bikes and paddle boards. And we've written stories about the travel industry. So I wanted to ask people what they spent their stimulus money on. And I was actually surprised by how few people were spending it on anything from frivolous. A lot of people paid off debt, whether they're talking about college loans, credit cards, or mortgages. Some just stuck it in bank accounts, figuring they'd need it for later. Some of it was all gone in everyday bills. A lot of people donated to food banks. I was really impressed by the number of people who said they just gave it to needy causes. Um, Some gave it to family members. And then there were health procedures that their insurance didn't all cover, but they needed like dental crowns or braces or 
you know, surgeries. Um, some hired local contractors to renovate kitchens or porches or install a new shower. And then there's like this laundry list that they gave me, like tires, a washing machine, dishwasher, a treadmill, because they'd been moving less since the pandemic started. Um, new car. And the, the most fun thing I, I heard was a red Vespa. They actually said shiny red Vespa. And I got um, some ribbing from Chris Wernowski about my favorite word, shiny. So I took that out of the story. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> one was saving for their wedding. But I did talk to a couple economists and they said that because this money came in a big chunk and it was unexpected, it almost felt like found money that people were more willing to part with it than they would be if it was, you know, their tax return that they had already planned for. And obviously this is the third round of stimulus we got. The first round was much more likely just to be spent on everyday necessities that people needed. And as we moved through the pandemic, people had a little bit more of a cushion. Yeah, hey, we, I'm really grateful to the, um, to the people who subscribe to our texting accounts. Cause whenever we ask a question like that, we, we get, you know, a hundred, 200 more responses that are, that just fill out. They're some of the nicest people I deal with. Uh, I, I hear from, you know, 50 to a hundred a day in response to mine. And I think you get a bunch too in the coronavirus one. I do. And are, they are, and, you are right. They are so nice, you know, cause we get a lot of emails that are telling us that we're idiots and I don't really get that on subtext. People tell me about their personal experiences or what they think about, you know, a coronavirus story or something, but they, they're conversational. Yeah. It's the, we, we searched for years for a way to engage with our audience in a, in a productive way and kind of just fell into this. And I, I, it's one of the best things. I mean, I think I have 860 people that get the texts every day and then, um, I get back many messages every day. It's pretty good. You're hey, listening wait, a minute, to this wait a minute, Chris, you, said, <laughs> <laughs> you shared some of those subtexts with me and there were people calling me idiot. <laughs> no, 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 that wasn't um, subtext. That was email. That was email. No, no, they were subtext. <laughs> no, they were email. You're wrong. But you're wrong. <laughs> okay. You're listening this week in the CLE. Is a Rule 29 decision coming down in a Cleveland murder case involving the brother of a famous gymnast in which three people were killed at a party? Leila Tassi, Rule 29 means that a judge, in the rarest of cases, says the prosecution's case is so weak that it shouldn't even go to the jury. Is that what we have here? It could be. You know, this could just be an outright dismissal. To, to remind people, this is the murder trial of the U.S. Army soldier charged with a triple homicide. He also happens to be the brother of world-famous gymnast Simone Biles. Judge Joan Sinnenberg sent jurors home on Monday while she decided whether she would even send the case back to the jury for the deliberations. The de defense lawyers for Tevin Biles Thomas, uh, who faces murder and voluntary manslaughter and felonious assault charges, had filed what's known as the Rule 29 motion and it, it requesting the dismissal of the charges. And, and most of the time, the judge just denies this. It's kind of almost seen as a formality. But in this case, Sinnenberg really wanted to think it over. So she sent the jury home. And that really makes sense, given the history of, of this case, which has been fraught with so many problems. The case has been tried twice. At the end of the first trial last month, Sinnenberg declared it a mistrial because some legal briefs had been mistakenly mixed in with evidence that the jury was being sent back to deliberate with. And the briefs contained discussions among lawyers about whether self-defense should be a consideration. And the jurors told the judge that that really affected their thinking on the case. So she scrapped the whole trial and started over. Well, then this week, the prosecutors started over, but they immediately ran into trouble. And their key witness 
totally flaked on them and they rested their case without even calling him to the stand. Instead, the state's entire case rested on the testimony of uh, a woman who admitted on the stand that she did not see the shooter's face, but pointed to a surveillance video of Biles Thomas entering the party. And uh, she said that she was 75% sure that the shooter was wearing the same clothes. And that was pretty much it. Investigators never found a gun or any DNA evidence linking Biles Thomas to the shooting. So, yeah, I can see why Sinnenberg is seriously considering the Rule 29 motion in this case. It's obviously a very serious set of charges and three people are dead. So it calls for justice. But you got to put together a better case than this, you know. And yeah, How and, could you not have reasonable doubt? I mean, right. You right. have one witness who's 75 percent sure the person in the video is wearing the clothes. I mean, it's just come on. The, right. the reasonable doubt is all over this thing. Um, it would seem like the right thing to do. I mean, the prosecution shouldn't have brought the case again. They should have put it into abeyance, investigated more, brought a stronger case. The problem is once this is dismissed, if it's dismissed, you can't ever try him again. And so even if you get even if he did it and you get the evidence, he will never uh, there'll never be justice. So mm-hmm, it's a mm-hmm. seems like a really bogus decision by the prosecutor's office. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do one more. What's the latest evidence that Lordstown Motors is in serious risk of going out of business? Laura Johnston, things are looking bad. Yeah. I wonder if this was a scam from the beginning. Right. The CEO and CFO are out. And that CEO is Steve Burns and CFO is uh, Julio Rodriguez. They stepped down on Monday and that sent shares tumbling again. They were already down 40% this year. They tumbled more than 17%. Honestly, I'm surprised that they didn't just drop to zero, but um, Lordstown was responding to this damning Hindenburg report from March that said that um, they acknowledged that one potential buyer that had made a number of pre-orders doesn't actually have the money to buy them. And then other pre-orders were too vague or weak to be relied on. If you remember, they were kind of saying, Pre-orders didn't mean they they had to buy them, which is bizarre. But uh, last week they cautioned, Lordstown cautioned, they might not be in business a year from now. And uh, yeah, so not looking good. And what's funny is that the departing CEO is the company's largest shareholder with 26% stake in the company. Yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't see how they can make it. I mean, they also investigated, they say, the, the allegations against them. You know, but does anybody believe what they're finding? Um, I mean, you just don't see a future. So No, I uh, mean, at this point, it does feel like it was a big fraud. Like, here's our prototype. And they never had any intention of building beyond that prototype. They just wanted something to show off on the White House lawn. Yeah, yeah. Which, which you always wondered about. Was this just a stunt to prop up Donald Trump? You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. We'll uh, have Seth Richardson on tomorrow to talk politics. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.